Welcome to the Next Step Now podcast, where resilience and redemption meet. Join hosts Melinda Doolittle, a multifaceted artist and self-described joy dealer, and David Lawson, a successful small business owner and returned citizen, as they bring you captivating stories of hope and overcoming. Are you ready for personal transformation? Then buckle up and take your next step now. Hey, this is David from the Next Step Now podcast. And before we go any further, I want you to hear this clip from our guest today. So the thought that like, that easily could have been me behind bars. I easily could have gotten in a drunk wreck and killed somebody. So many times, hundreds of times. And I was just one of the lucky people that didn't. That was Brandon. And Melinda and I truly enjoyed being able to sit down and have a conversation with him. And I know you're going to love listening to him talk about his story with Timothy's gift, but most importantly, his journey to overcoming his addiction to alcohol and how it has changed his life. Enjoy the conversation. Brandon, your first year on the Timothy's Gift Tour, 2021. Yep. You and I got to be roommates and we never met. We did. It's... I'm sitting there in this room. So, so I got there early. You guys drove from Nashville. I live in Florida. So I just drove over to meet you. I forget where. Yeah, where was that? Florida. Mariana or something <laughs> like that. I never yeah, it's know all where one I big am. Place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in Florida. So you walk in and I'm like, okay, which one of these is my roommate? Is it, we had never met each other. I had no idea who you were. Yeah, I didn't know anybody at that point except for... Matt and Shelly. Really? So, yeah, everyone else, I was just like, hey, y'all, I'll try to remember your names. And <laughs> So, you two became great friends, like... Immediately. Instantly. Yeah, minutes. Yes. In, in actual minutes. And I, part We probably of it both was, made a bad joke, and we're like, <laughs> oh, we're friends. I mean, I think we just, like, by default, got seated... In the back of the van, like it was mm-hmm. the two of us on one row, and it was it's like they're the loudest. Ron's like, put them in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and it, honestly, like I, I nicknamed him Baby Santa because he has the best Santa Claus beard, and but like the the baby face, and so and rosy cheeks, like just on a normal basis. Well, now I'm blushing. <laughs> they're real rosy. So I nicknamed him Baby Santa day one, and. I I am just now understanding that he's never been called that before, but now basically all of Florida calls him Baby Santa, and I should apologize, but I don't think I want to. Yeah, I'm just bringing the Buffalo, New York to Florida. So you are from Buffalo, New York. Yep. So what's it like being from Buffalo, now in Flo- living in Florida mm-hmm. by way of Nashville? That's like three very distinctly different areas. Yeah, I just became a Canadian goose and came down here for the the winters, you know? <laughs> Um, no, it's, I'm loving it. I'm loving being at the beach. Um, I do miss Nashville a little bit. Yeah. All my friends are there and you know, I spent my like entire adulthood in Nashville. Okay. So it was just like years and years of meeting people, connections. So then to come here, it's like, it's awesome. It's very relaxing, but I'm like, oh, it's a Tuesday night. Who do I call? <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess I'm going to dinner by myself. And, you know, it's like, but no, it's been great. I've been with my sister and brother-in-law. So it's been Really nice to get family time in. Very cool. And so what are you doing now artistically, vocally? What do you, what do, you do down in Florida? Or what brought you down to St. Augustine? Yeah, so the whole idea was 
I mean, Nashville's great, but you play downtown Broadway. You know, all the venues have a cap on how much money you can make. They're paying you as little money as they can, hoping you make it all on tips, um, which I get. It's, you know, it's so saturated. Each bar has three bands playing at a time. Um, but like my first week here in Florida, I made more money not knowing anybody, not having any connections, made more money the first week here than I did my last week in Nashville. Oh, wow. And I was also working a second job in Nashville. You know, I was in the tourism world a long time. Then to come here and play like three shows in a week and be like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So yeah, I'm just playing downtown St. Augustine, uh, Jacksonville a little bit. Okay. And uh, yeah, just trying to sing for people. All right. And you're with the Nashville Tenors. I am. I am. I'm uh, very excited. We get to explore the world here soon. I'm, where, I'm ready to go Where are some out. of the places you're going? We'll be in Hawaii the whole month of September. You poor it's, guy. It's a I know. rough life. I know. I'm trying to work on my base tan right now because uh, <laughs> baby Santa's been spending too much time at the North Pole. I had to, yeah. He's in uh, beach shorts now trying to get a little tan going. But yeah, we'll be in Hawaii the whole month of September. I'll go to Nova Scotia, down in the Caribbean. I'll be in Mexico and... Kind of all over the place. Oh, wow. Is, which is cool for me because I've never left the country. You oh, first is, time yeah. leaving the country? Well, I've been to Canada, but I basically grew up, you know, super close to Niagara Falls. So when we were 19, we would cross the border to be able to drink legally and then and then come back. <laughs> oh, yeah, th- those were the, the large, uh, the college weekends. You jump over the border, like, oh, this is legal and fun. And then you come back and... They're That's like, funny. they're like, why do you look hungover? That. You're, you're 19. As they're looking at your passport, you're like, oh no, it's fine. And then you know, wow, it's fun. That's funny. I never knew <laughs> that. I didn't, I didn't realize either. the drinking age different stuff mm-hmm. like that. I had no idea. Yep. Have you always wanted to be an artist? Yeah. So growing up, there was always a, a keyboard in the house. It was an old Wurlitzer keyboard, and uh, my dad was like, "This is your grandfather's." And I never got to meet my grandparents on, on my dad's side. So I'd always play it, and they're like, let's get him piano lessons. Started taking piano lessons, and uh, at first I liked it, and then I hated it for a long time, <laughs> as you know any kid would. Um, but there was always like that feeling that, you know, like my grandfather was kind of, you know, as morbid as it sounds, kind of teaching me from underground. You know, I always had like this feeling he was always there with me since I was mm-hmm. playing his keyboard. And then uh, through that, I started playing trumpet all through elementary school. I was in... I was a band nerd forever. I was in marching band for like seven years. Okay. Or actually, I guess it was five. Seventh grade till till I graduated. Okay. Um, and then I was in choir the whole time. And then uh, it was actually my senior year. Um, I There was this rapper from a couple of towns over, P-Fame. His name was Alex Bussinger. <laughs> <laughs> he was awesome. Really good friend of mine, but um, phenomenal you know, he, he, uh, rapped and he was a recording engineer as well. So I'd go to his house and he'd be like, can you sing some hooks? And I had no idea what that even meant. I didn't know what I was doing. So we'd sit there and write and I would sing these like R and B hooks over his rap stuff. And he just had this cheap, you know, pro tool set up from guitar center. And uh, that was the first recording rig I got. I bought off him. Um, so really he was kind of the one that like introduced me to the whole online recording thing. And then uh, from there, I did a, a musical in high school, and I swore I would never do one. I was like, that's lame. I'm not going to do that. And my friend Marshall was like, man, come on, come do it with me. Just be an extra. So I auditioned, 
And I said, I just want to be an extra. And uh, the, the teacher, Mr. Doctor, he's like, man, it was really good. I was like, cool. Yeah, I just want to be an extra. You know, the next day they posted everything and I got casted as Tony and West Side Story. Oh, wow. And I was like, <laughs> I was like here we go. I, I'm going from never doing anything like this before to having this romantic role and I have to die at the end of the, the musical. You just ruined and, it for everyone. That and I was like, I just got a side story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I think it's okay. I'm I kidding. think it's okay. It's been out for a minute. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> they had their chance. It's been about 18 remakes. It's all right. So yeah, that was really like the first moment where I was like, wow, I really enjoy performing, singing in front of people. Um, from there, I went to college, played trumpet through college, got my degree in recording and then moved to Nashville. Okay. You, so, ha- you have a degree in recording? Yes. That I should probably use more than I do, but, you know. That was kind of the game plan when I moved to Nashville was to work in the recording world. You know, go. I had an internship at uh, Black River Entertainment. It's a publishing company. Uh, Soundstage. I don't know if Melinda's recorded yes. there at all. Uh-huh. Um, great internship. Loved it. Um, but it also made me realize how intense, like, a, a big studio is. I mean, those guys... They're putting in 70, 80 hour weeks in the studio and they're sitting there by themselves. And uh, I remember one of the engineers sitting there and he's tuning vocals on uh, this country album and he comes out and he's like, man, can I just vent to you? He hardly knew me. And he's like, I just want you to know that like, unless you really, really want to do this job, don't do it. Hmm. He's like, my wife's threatened to divorce me three times this week. I'm never home. And that was kind of just like, you know, this light went off in my head. I was like, I don't really like sitting in a room by myself anyway, (laughs) let alone doing something that's as repetitive as just sitting there tuning someone else's vocals. So I was like, you know, I'm going to, you know, keep doing the recording thing, but I want to start singing. So, you know, started doing writer's rounds around Nashville and I was in the restaurant industry forever. And uh, I think there was a part of me that was always afraid to take on music full time. Because it's, I mean, Melinda probably knows this too. It's like, it's your passion, you know? So the idea of like making money off of it and like you said, selling tickets, like when I listen to your podcast, Mm -hmm. it is a weird feeling because you have like this childhood, like, oh, I love to sing. Right. I'm taking lessons, getting to this point where it's like, now I have to do this for real. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a different, it's like a daunting feeling. It is. So it took me a long time. And really, it took COVID happening for me to decide, you know, I'm going to do this full time. What you just said is pretty interesting to me. So when things go from a hobby to a business, that's a big leap. It's huge. And th- totally not on the same level of either one of you. But I used to love doing woodwork until yeah. people asked me to build them stuff and they mm-hmm. wanted to pay me to build cabinets. And then I felt like this perfectionism came in yep. mm-hmm. and I became super critical of everything I did yep. and I could never get it right at that point when they wanted to build the thing I'd already or pay for the thing I'd already built three times and they liked the way it was before. And I just found nothing but issues with it all of a sudden. Yes. You experience that when you go from make that jump in music also? Definitely. I think like doing like the writer's rounds, you're you're playing original songs. Um, just for people that don't know what you know, Nashville Writers Rounds are, it's basically three people sitting up on a stage, sharing songs that they've written. And in those moments, you're you're sharing the lyrics, you're sharing your voice. Um, you know, you're just like you feel like you're giving a gift to somebody. But then when you're doing these cover gigs, 
you almost expect perfection out of yourself. And I'm very much like, you know, my ear messes with me all the time. Because if I hear myself a little bit flat, a little bit sharp, I get in my head. Because mm-hmm. I can hear it. And I'm like, why did I, why did I do that? And then that, that's when you start getting yourself. So I think just throughout the last couple of years of doing it full time, I realized that like perfection really isn't expected. And uh, it's, it's almost better when, you know, you're just your real self. I mean, yeah. Perfection is self-imposed mm-hmm. on, on most of us, yeah. you know, and we think that people have expectations of us that they actually don't, they would actually just like to enjoy what you bring to the table. Yeah. So I think that's awesome. Same with your woodwork, David. Thank you. <laughs> it's not what this is about, Melinda. <laughs> Time to move on. <laughs> I do need a new woodworking elf. Um, a woodworking elf. Yeah, Santa. Uh, oh. oh. The- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second there, but that was a great little... Okay, let's see here. Let's see. After the tour, I may have a little bit of free time. Yeah. So we'll see. That's right, leading right up to Christmas. Uh, okay, so you are singing in Nashville. You've done the. You've done all the bars. Yep. You did all the Broadway stuff. So many. Where all the bachelorette <laughs> parties from across the country and around the world all seem to go to Nashville now. Yes, and let's be clear that Brandon did not just sing in Nashville. He also helped drive the party buses, right? Yeah, the party buses, pedal taverns. <laughs> I took people on beer, bourbon, barbecue tours. I took the bachelorettes to all the murals in town, took their pictures. Yeah, it was like 60 okay. people on a coach bus. Let's go. So it was. And I will say that that alone helped me with stage presence more than actually performing did. Because singing in front of people doesn't freak me out. It was always the talking. So to be at like eight in the morning and I have that? 60 people on a coach bus and I'm half asleep, I'd be like, Hey y'all, I'm Brandon. I'm your party captain. Let's do this. You know, and you have to like put on this show first thing in the morning with no coffee. And like that honestly helped me more than anything. Baby Santa, the party captain. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So someone approaches you and says, Hey, you want to go sing in prison? What in the world would make you want to do that? Yeah. You know, I, to be honest, I don't really know. Um, at first, it definitely intimidated me. I'd never been in a prison. You know, it's like the only experience I had with it was I have some friends who were COs and I have a couple of friends I grew up with who, who had done time, but you know, I kind of lost touch with them too. And, uh, I think it was just for me, it was a moment to give back with music in a way that wasn't, there's was like no sort of like, it's not conceited. It's not like about me because that's the problem with being an artist. There's a part of you that has to be a little bit cocky. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not confident. But then there's like yeah. that fine line. It's like if you're too cocky, then you know you're just that person no one wants Turn to everybody off. to be around. Yeah. I, so uh, yep. I think it was just a, a point of I can do music, and people are who really need it um, are going to be there listening to every word. So Melinda, what were your first impressions when Brandon shows up? Oh wow. Um. She was like GQ I, model. That's exactly. (laughs) I was like, who is this little Santa? Um, I think my first impression was, thank God he can play the guitar and sing well. Because sometimes you don't know if they're going to come in prepared or anything like that. And then he just had a great attitude, too. And I think sometimes you also don't know 
how people are coming in personality wise. Mm. Like if they're like, I'm doing you a favor by being here. Or if they are like, I love being part of a team. So he was very quickly like, I'm so happy to be part of this team. And then he had done his homework. So I think I was just relieved, probably first and foremost. And um, then I just prefer to be in the back of the van because people talk to you less there. Okay. <laughs> and I, I'm a, I'm a quieter, introverted type person. And so I prefer to be back there. And then with his guitar and everything, they put him in the back too. And I was like, well, I guess I, I got to know this little guy. <laughs> not, you're not little. Wow. You're not little. Baby Santa is what I was thinking. Like with the baby face, yeah. you know? And I was like, I'm, I'm going to sit out here and just, I guess, get to know him. And honestly, just so much fun. I had the best time. And I was like, oh, I'm glad he's on our tour. Like, this is this is going to be great. And it truly was. Like, every time he fit in with everybody. And that made it really easy because that that is not always the case. I'm not saying we have troublemakers. That's not That's not it. But somebody that just easily goes with the flow and fits in with everybody that's a gift. So, Brandon, what's your first impression? You walk in and you see this group of musicians. One of them, I don't know if you knew of this lady, Melinda Doolittle. Oh, yeah. I mean, who has some th- this TV experience and all of this mm. level of fame, but then you have all these other incredibly t- and talented musicians. You'd worked with a bunch of people like that before, but yep. you're walking into this group. What was your first impression? Well, I was a huge American Idol fan uh, growing up. So that season, I was a big Melinda fan, Jordan Sparks, Blake Lewis, I was always into like beatboxing. I'm a terrible beatboxer, <laughs> uh, but I would sit there and watch like videos on YouTube of there's this beatboxer, Rozelle, who used to be, yeah. you know, this big thing. So Blake was kind of the first person on, you know, live television show to kind of bring that into it, into the music. Wow. So that I was like super into that season. Um, you know, I'd been watching since I never really watched the first season, but you know, I was a big Clay Aiken, Ruben Stuttered fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, crazy because i didn't even know melinda was going to be there and i walk in and i was like is that melinda doolittle <laughs> so it was yeah and i'm sitting back there and you know i don't consider myself a guitar player so to be a guitar player on this tour i was like oh boy she's probably played with some of the best guitar players in the world <laughs> i mean she's plays with orchestras and jazz bands and like these like super hot like highly decorated musicians and i'm like oh boy here we go so, that was my first impression. That's interesting. You intimidated that. me. Oh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Until you, you got that. on the backseat of the bus. Or yeah. the band. Then it was a different story. <laughs> that first day of going to a prison. I still have a question before we get oh, to the prison. okay, please. So, we get to Florida, and you two meet, and you just you know that your roommates, Mm -hmm. like, what was that like? Cause I don't, um, I have not been the person to show up and meet my roommate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Ron purposely does not do that to me because he (laughs) knows that I'd be like, what? I don't know this person. So what was that like? Like not knowing each other and immediately being roomies. Okay. From my perspective, I knew if he was coming on this tour, everything I had experienced with Timothy's gift, I knew he had to have a great heart. Hmm. But I am showing up as a returned citizen. 
okay. And what is this guy going to think about rooming with someone who spent time in prison? So I'm thinking, does he know me? Does he, how, does he know that I used to be in prison? How do I tell him that's one of my roles here? And so what, what is that going to look like? And so I was anxious over that. That's something I, I will always carry that anxiety and having to share that with someone. Wow. But in a personal situation, I'm like, so you're stuck in this room with me for the next week. So, but here's the deal, just so you know. And Brandon, you made me feel so comfortable. And you were accepting. And it was it was pretty amazing from my perspective because that's not always the case. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I, and as we talked, we found out we had a mutual friend and yep. Paul Van. Yep. Um, I mean, you know him much better than I do. I knew him years ago. Hmm. Um, but the way that you came in and you were excited about it and you had never been in a prison before, but I'm thinking, what would make this kid <laughs> want to do this? Yeah. And I, I loved your heart and your enthusiasm for it. Um, but no, the way you, you kind of accepted me and my role on the team, I thought it was just amazing. And then you opened up and you told me more of your story. Yep. And I just, I loved it. Um, and I'll put in a request for any time, um, to have Brandon as the roommate on the tour. I I'm all about that. I mean, so, um, awesome. no, I, I, I felt like I ended up with a friend Mm-hmm. That. And I'm glad Definitely. you're down here in St. Augustine because you're much closer now. And I finally have a Timothy's gift friend down here <laughs> close by. It's crazy how worlds collide, it is. you know, mm-hmm. after, after different experiences. No, but I felt the same way, you know, just immediately very comfortable. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of going into the entire experience with a very open mind. And um, as far as like meeting new people, I'm, it really never scares me. Um, I just like to talk and I, I like connection with people, you know, so... It was just one of those things where I was like, well, hopefully we get along. And we did immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, like conversation. I think the only thing I was nervous about was I was like, I don't know how loud I snore. And <laughs> and hopefully I don't keep him up all night. <laughs> you know, this right. could be a thing. Um, he does. <laughs> <laughs> but it was okay. And I, it's funny, I am a morning person. So I would get up, I would do my shower stuff, and I would head out. That way he has the space to get up and do his and he is a more get up when needed. Oh yeah, <laughs> and get going, which is probably an artist mindset because you're working late nights all the time. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and you get those are not routine. Our so, but I am a morning person, so I would just yeah. get up and get going. And I so see, it worked out kind of well that way. I see two, three a.m. most of the time. I'm yeah. up very late mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, that's not me. Yeah, I it, think too is as musicians. It's um, for me personally. It's it's always a time of like self reflection. Yes. Um, it, it also just feels very peaceful that time of night. My phone's not going off. I'm not getting emails, messages, you know, just like all these different distractions. So if I want to sit there with Netflix, I can do it with no distractions. If I want to write, I can do it with no distractions. Um, and there's just I, just, I just like nighttime. I really do. It's the wind down. Like after a show, I, I definitely can't go straight to sleep because my brain is like, going through what happened, all of that. And so I'm up for a minute before I can kind of calm everything down and actually sleep. So when somebody's like, would you like to do something in the AM? I'm like, I do. 
I do not understand your words. Like, <laughs> I yeah. do not want to get up early. So um, that's cool that you did that for him. That was a gift to him for you to take the morning shift and then let him. <laughs> well, see, you say you see two or three o'clock in the morning as kind of a normal routine. Yeah. My daughter would say, I see eight or nine o'clock at night. <laughs> and that's my normal routine. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for asking that question. Because mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that till yep. just now again. And that's awesome. just the different worlds colliding. And yep. then that you are down here in St. Augustine. I just think it's kind of cool. So then the tour actually starts. Um, you go into your first facility. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I recall you being like, like like the nervous kind of excited. Yeah, I think we, I was like, more nervous about accidentally taking something in I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. Like that the, first time, the unknown. There has been multiple times where I'm like, hey, David, can I use your, can I have the van keys? I have to go put my cell phone back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or my AirPods. Or, right. I mean, there's just always something. Or I, I forgot this for my guitar, you know, because you're constantly just being like, I can't screw up. I, you know, you can't accidentally bring a cell phone in or you're in a lot of trouble. Th- that is mm-hmm. a level of stress. I mean, I've yes. gone now many times in my last time I walked in with my Apple watch mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, you can't bring that in here. And you just, you just forget some of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that is intimidating. Yeah. What else, what's going through your head as you're standing there looking at this fence and the barbed wire on top and everything I think nothing really hit me until we got in, like even looking at everyone sitting there until the actual, like, you know, kind of service started with all the music. And that's what really gets me. It's like when you're playing and then you watch everyone's reaction, you know, and then throughout the show, you'd reveal who you are. You'd reveal who Tim was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was cool too. My first tour, that was Tim's first tour. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like the first time you all came yep on it together. So I was very grateful to be a part of that experience. Um, but that's when it really hit me. It was, I mean, Melinda can tell you, I cry every single performance. <laughs> I, t- I turned around, like we were like maybe three songs in possibly. And I turned around <laughs> and it's upbeat and I see tears and I was like, Oh, yeah, Oh, we've lost baby Santa. <laughs> I, and yeah. truly like, and he, he said like, I'm, I might cry. It's po- it's it's very possible that I cry and it just I could tell that you were deeply affected. Yeah. I think too just being, you know, an acoustic guitar player, kind of like sing some background vocals here and there. I'll take lead on one or two songs, but I'm able to sit there and really watch. Mm. Um, you know, as a singer, you're kind of like putting on more performance. Mm-hmm. Drummer, you're sitting you're back there busy. Keyboard player's always looking down at his hands. I can sit there and play guitar and not even... I can just look at people the whole time. Hmm. Um, so I feel like I kind of have the best seat in the house oh, at wow. that point. Because I can watch you guys. I can watch Ron out in the audience. I can watch... You know, I see Tim out there sitting with all the other guys and I'm just watching everyone's reaction. So I think that's why I get so emotional so watching what are, it all. What are some of the reactions that you would see from the men? You know, it's it's a, when you first go in... Um, you see these guys who have these hard exteriors. They don't want to smile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say 75% of the guys are like, thank you so much for coming, you know, yeah. smiling, waving. But there's those, it's those few guys that you don't see doing that, that those are the guys like I want to watch. Because mm-hmm. you, you see them transform throughout the performance. 
Um, and then it like see them break down and, uh, you start like seeing their wheels, you know, turn. Yeah. It's like, you know, they're thinking about family, you know, they're thinking about, you know, everything. Yeah. So during the shows, you know, we, previous episodes, we've talked about the show and kind of walked through what they were like. What was one of your favorite moments of the show? Probably every time is when Shelly takes her solo and I play guitar. Mm -hmm. That is just such a special moment to me. Um, Right now I'm drawing a blank on the name of the song. Love Me. Yeah. By J.J. Hill. Mm -hmm. Absolutely incredible song. Um, But that's really a moment that like, that is a moment I definitely cry every single time. Um, but that that's a moment where you just really feel a connection with everybody in the room. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing, um, there's nothing fun about that moment. There's nothing, you know, there just feels like there's no judgment. Everyone is just in that emotional state together. And I, I think it's really cool. And I think um, I've seen watching you be affected by things that happen during the concert, like that is powerful. But one of my favorite moments, I think um, with you on your first tour was we were at, I think it was Jefferson Mm -hmm. um, and some of the guys that helped us set up. And so we were eating dinner and, they were joining us. And so you and I sat at a table, which those are some of my favorite moments, the ones that happen off stage, I think. And we're sitting at a table with a guy and he is talking through his story and how he came to be incarcerated because of a DUI. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your journey with alcoholism and sobriety and the connection yeah. that you had with him. I mean, I literally just got silent and ate. Well, now I don't want to say the big whatever chicken sandwich. I don't feel like I should say the name of it. No, that, that, that is okay. The The name of this sandwich <laughs> is the Big As Chicken Sandwich. A-Z-Z. That is what it is called. So I ate my big-ass chicken sandwich as you shared your story. And it was the connection that you two had was beautiful. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing a bit of how you connected with him. Leading up to that tour, um, I drank a lot for years. It was just part of the territory living in Nashville. I bartended. I was in the restaurant industry. um, And anyone who's worked in that world knows what goes on. Um, same with music. You know, I'd be playing show at 11 a.m. downtown Broadway. People are like, hey, we don't have any money to tip you, but here's three shots of Jack Daniels. Hmm. And you're like, well, all right. You take one. And um, throughout the years, it, you know, I never felt like I had an issue with drinking um, because I didn't get angry. I didn't, um, I didn't make people mad. You know, it was... So I was like, oh, I'm just having fun. I didn't feel like I was using it to push down any sort of feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, I like to party. I like to have fun, be with people. But over time, I'm starting to do it every day. I'm starting to have massive anxiety issues, mm-hmm. um, mainly because you're hung over all the time. Mm-hmm. Dehydrated, blood pressure levels, everything else. Um, are into some health issues with it. Um, and then, you know, digestive issues. 
I mean, just everything, everything under the sun, money issues. And I would blame like, oh, I don't have enough money. I'm not making enough money at work. You know, it's like in the restaurant, I was making over $1,000 a week. And mm. there's no reason I shouldn't have had money. Mm. But I was the kind of person I'd go out to the bar and I'd be like, oh, I'm with five friends. Take a round of shots. Hmm. I wake up the next day and a $200 bill at the bar and be like, oh, what was that for? Now we all feel terrible today. Hmm. We're probably going to go out and do it again tonight. Wow. So it was this whole journey of, um, you know, alcoholism runs in the family too. My father was an alcoholic when, when he was a child. Hmm. Um, you know, he was like 16 years old and drank very heavily, watched my grandma uh, die of cancer. At the time, there wasn't treatment. So, you know, he's sitting there dealing with that. My grandfather was an alcoholic. Um, so your dad, for your dad, it was a coping mechanism definitely. of him okay. watching his, his mom or yep. his yep. pass away of cancer. Wow. And then my grandfather, he was a you know, massive drinker as well. Mm. Uh, he was a, a school teacher in, in my hometown, and I've only ever heard amazing stories about him. He's the grandfather that, you know, kind of inspired me to play piano. Mm. But everyone I talked to, they're like, your grandfather was my teacher. Like, he was incredible. And then, like, all of his friends be like, yeah, he also had a flask in his desk. We drink all day long. Mm. Wow. He would teach driver's ed <laughs> at the oh, end of the no. school day. Which, I'm assuming he wasn't drinking then, but he'd probably been drinking during the day, you know. Oh, wow. But he also played in, lo- like, a local band. Now, I don't want to give light to that, but I think if I had to teach a bunch of high schoolers how to drive and driver's ed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I may do some drinking, and I'm, I've never drank in my life. So I, that, no. I mean, to be fair, as a driver's ed teacher, you're not the one driving. You're just well, instructing. That's, oh, that's, that's true, that's too. That's actually a great point. Yeah. There you go. No, no, um, certainly not to make light of that. but there. Yeah, but it was like one of those things, too, where just kind of showing it goes with the music industry. People say, like, yeah, your grandfather would play, you know, play keys, and by the end of the set, he would take a shot of whiskey in between every single song. And he'd have rocks glasses stacked up on the piano, 10 high by the end of the show. Wow. So it's just something that like, you know, my tolerance was pretty wild. Mm. I could take shots, drink beers all night. People would be like, you're drunk. And I'd be like, oh yeah. And they'd be like, I have no idea. You know, and then just certain things like Melinda said, I mean, that really hit me when we talked to that guy. Mm. You know, he'd gotten in a, in a drunk wreck and I'm assuming killed somebody because he said he was doing like 20, 25 years. Oh, wow. And that was a moment for me where I was like, I just broke down because I was like, I can't count the amount of times I've gotten behind a wheel and drove drunk, mm. gotten in cars with friends who have, you know, and I've, I've lost friends in, you know, drunk driving accidents to drugs, to everything else. And uh, it kind of put everything in perspective because at the time I was only, you know, I've been, uh, it was that year I, be- I became sober, August 12th of that year. And here we are in December, you know, end of November. So I was like very fresh into this new lifestyle. And uh, he started crying when I told him that I was a few months sober. And I'll just never forget that look in his eye. And he's just like, just keep, keep doing it. You know, you won't regret it. Wow. So. So taking a step backwards from that, you know, that date, August 12th. Mm Mm-hmm. What was it about that day or leading up to it that made you decide this is not my life anymore? Big thing was I had abdominal pain. I had to go to the hospital and they thought I had pancreatitis. I thought I was going to have to have emergency surgery. 
that point, I didn't even have health care because I was like, I'm fine. You know, I've struggled with blood pressure issues most of my adulthood. And um, when they ran the test, they're like, actually, you don't have pancreatitis, but you do have like, you know, some issues with your pancreas and your liver. And the doctor was like, how much do you drink? And I was like, mm, I don't know, like five to 10 drinks. He goes, a week? He's like, that's not terrible. And I was like, no, that's a day. And he was like, oh. He's like, well. And he basically told me, if you keep doing this, you're really going to shorten your life. Wow. Um, so they found out it wasn't pancreatitis, luckily. Um, but I did have some sort of you know, infection, and it was caused by drinking so much. Wow. Um, so that was a huge, huge moment. There was just also other things, you know, with um, I didn't feel focused, especially with the music. I would almost treat it as like a fun hobby or a game, you know, and uh, I wasn't practicing nearly enough. My vocals weren't nearly as good as they are now. I was always dehydrated. Throat always hurt. You know, I'd be known to smoke a cigarette here and there after some drinks. So, you know, you're waking Mm up and you just can't sing as well. Mm. Um, So it's really just me kind of realizing I've just always luckily loved life and I, I like you know, being with people and all this stuff. And I was like, gosh, like, I don't want to miss out on like the rest of life. So. Wow. So was it a decision and then you're, you were done from then forward? Was it Alcoholics Anonymous? Was it a program? Was it anything or for you, were you, were you able to do it just with a decision? Luckily I, I drank one more time after I got hospitalized. I went out in the river and I drank about half a bottle of tequila and I went home. I woke up on the couch the next morning. I don't remember falling asleep and I woke up and I just lost it. I was like, what am I doing? Like I literally just got terrible news from the doctor and here I am. And that was the point I realized I'm pushing something down. There's more to this than just having fun with mm. friends. Um, so yeah, that was the day I was like never drinking again. Haven't since. I accidentally drank half a beer. Wait a minute. I got to tell you guys a story. How do you accidentally drink? Half. Like, I didn't understand an accidental, like, sip. Yeah. So, the Super Bowl this year was on the 12th, which was my year and a half sobriety date. Okay. Mm -hmm. I went home. uh, It's actually a pretty funny story. And I would, you know, once in a while, if there's like a party, I'll drink like one of the non-alcoholic beers. Mm -hmm. Just so I feel like I'm like Mm -hmm. part of the experience. So... It was this, uh, I don't want to say the company, because I don't want them to feel bad if they ever hear this, <laughs> but it was, it was a company I only thought made non-alcoholic beers. Mm. And we had some in the fridge, and my roommate was like, hey, I got some more of those beers. So I opened one, looked at it, I was like, oh, new flavor I haven't heard of. I'm sitting there sipping it. It took me about a half an hour to drink half of it. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to a friend, and I'm like, man, I feel real relaxed. And I look down, it says 5.6% alcohol. <sighs> I was like, I just drank half a beer. And I immediately went to the sink and dumped it. And then okay. we kind of laughed about it because he had no idea. And he was doing, uh, was it the sober January or dry, dry oh, January? Yes. Uh, and he had bought those for that month. So he'd drink like one here and there thinking he wasn't drinking. <laughs> but really was having, having a beer. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that's been the only time uh-huh. since. Um, but it, it's, it's still a daily struggle. And, so, and then this August of 
23 so it would be two years. Two years. Yep. Wow. Yep. And when you say daily struggle, like, what do you do when it comes up? Like, I so I will to- say, like, as far as I've always struggled with anxiety since I was a kid. I remember having like panic attacks at like five, six years old, hmm. like crying to my parents, being like, I don't want to die. And then mm-hmm. I couldn't breathe. I, there was moments I couldn't even like put my own clothes on because I would be like so just ridden with anxiety. Hmm. And um, I, I think that's why a lot of people drink in the first place or do drugs, especially in social settings. And I think that sometimes, you know, I was actually talking to my brother-in-law last night when we all got back from dinner and none of us drank there. And he was like, it's kind of cool to like, you don't feel pressure when no one else is drinking, but it's the opposite when everyone's drinking and you're the only one not drinking, you mm-hmm. almost feel like the outcast. You feel judged by not drinking. It's this whole like backwards thing. Hmm. Even as a bartender, there was times people would come sit at the bar. They'd be like, I'll just take a water. And in my head, I'm like, loser. You know, like, because I was, yeah. it was almost me trying to justify my lifestyle. Hmm. So I think that's been the biggest struggle for me is I'm very social and I, I realized what I craved more than the alcohol was being around friends. And once I realized that, I was able to be like, oh, I don't need alcohol at all. Okay. So you'll, you can still catch me in the nightlife at 2 a.m. <laughs> sober. I mean, it's my friends kind of get freaked out sometimes. They're like, aren't you tired? Like, you've been drinking soda water. Like everyone's ready for bed. And I'm like, where are we going next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm clear headed. Let's yeah. go. Yeah, I'll drive. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, the city next to us doesn't close till 4 a.m. You want to go? <laughs> but I think, too, that was a, a big part of my decision of leaving Nashville. You know, they say Nashville is a drinking town with a music problem. Hmm. And that is definitely Whoa. the truth, especially coming out of COVID. I mean, before that, it was yes, everyone comes to party, but being in the tourism world so much. Every time you have a tour, everyone shows up hungover, and then everyone starts drinking again. And it was a lifestyle I was so used to, and I connected with it, like with people so well on that I was like, I don't want to be around this every day. And I couldn't escape it because I was either you know on those tours or I was playing shows, and people are constantly trying to bring you drinks. And uh, I'll never forget there was this one moment I was playing uh, at the Omni Hotel. You know, this guy tried, I was with two of my buddies on stage and he tried to bring a shots of tequila. And in my head, I'm like, first of all, we're at a hotel. I know those shots were at least $20 each. Mm-hmm. So he spent $60 in my head. I'm like, just put $60 in the tip jar. I got to pay my rent. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and I said, thank you so much, but I don't drink anymore. It was pretty ironic and kind of funny. But um, one of my friends goes, everyone in the audience, hold up your drink. Let's, let's do a cheers. And they go, we're going to cheers to Brandon being, at the time, it was like one year sober. It happened to be right around my one year sobriety. So they're literally drinking <laughs> to my sobriety. And I just found it so comical. Um, but That's in that great. moment, I looked out and I could see the hurt in so many people's faces. Mm. Whew. Whew. Try not to cry. No, I appreciate your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I really do. You've taken practical steps. One of those being leaving a city because it was healthier for you to be away from that environment. Yeah. 
were there any other practical steps or things that you did? Like if someone's listening to this and they're struggling and they're on that brink, you know, for some people they have, they have to get to a mental place first. I think that's where it all starts. Yeah. But then are there practical things that you, other practical things you did that you would recommend? You know, I do think it is one of those things where you almost have to hit rock bottom. You know, I mean, there was times I woke up in the bed of my truck to the sunshine beating on me. I'd be out with friends and I didn't want to drive home. That's how drunk I would get. Literally wake up to the sun beating on me. Wow. It's those moments where you're like, I don't even know what neighborhood I'm in. Mm-hmm. You get out of your truck and there's, you know, you're like, what just happened? Your head's pounding. Um, so I do think it takes, you know, I just want to say too, like I grew up with an incredible family. You know, even though alcoholism ran in my family, I was taught from a child not to get caught up in it. My dad had experienced it. He's like, use other things like, you know, working out, eating well, being nice to people, volunteering. Use those as, you know, you like your addiction. It's almost one of those things where I think if people are going to do it, they're just going to do it. You're going to, you know, I went, I went to a massive party school in Western New York too. It was a, it was a music school. We were a bunch of nerds, um, but it was known as one of the biggest party schools in New York mm-hmm. state. You know, up to that, I, I'd never drank really, but I felt, I think everyone feels this when they drink, the, the wall comes down. You can really be yourself until you have too many. And then it has the reverse effects. And then all of a sudden, all these demons start coming out. You know, that's, I think that's why some people struggle with anger. It's all this deep rooted stuff. And then all of a sudden you can't control it. Luckily, I've never really had rage issues when it comes to that. But I just thought, you know, I hate dancing. I can't stand dancing. You put six beers in me. I'll be doing, I'll be spinning on my head. You know, it's like I have the time of my life. So I think some people get so caught up in, they like who they are in their own mind. And I've realized I can still be that person without substances. Mm. And people don't know the difference. You know, there's, I just met a guy at a bar, um, you know, as soon as I moved to town and we talked for quite a while. And then uh, I ended up going out with him a couple of nights later and met a bunch of his friends. And by the end of the night is one friend was talking to me and he's like, dude, I just noticed you haven't had a single drink tonight. People don't know. You're sitting there sipping on a water. No one's going to ask what you're doing. You know, I think it's the, that like freshly 21 mentality of, oh, you're not drinking, you're a loser. You know, and it's, it's, it's a sign of immaturity. There's people feel the need to like push that on you. Mm. When you get older, people really don't care and people start to understand. And that's been like huge thing too. It's when I first became sober, people are like, you know, you're going to lose a bunch of friends. There's going to be people that don't want to hang out because, which is, you know, sort of true. You have certain people who you only saw at the bars, but as far as people who I call and be like, let's go to dinner. Honestly, my friendships have gotten better. It's just a everyday journey. You mentioned earlier the health issues you were experiencing. Yep. Two years later, what has been the health impact on your life? Ooh. Well, within six months, I lost, it was like 25 pounds. I had what I think was stomach ulcers. I mean, I was getting sick almost after every meal I had, you know, a couple months of Prilosec and that cleared right up. <laughs> I don't get heartburn anymore. I don't, I used to get really bad dry skin, like really bad. I go to the barber 
And my, my barber natural is one of my you know best friends. And, you know, I'd be like, how's my scalp looking? He's like, not very good. And he always knew I would, I would be his model for 8 a.m. classes. And I'd show up and I'd be, I'd be hung over. And I'd be sitting there fighting back the nausea as I have a group of women watching him cut my hair. <laughs> and I'm just like seeing dandruff fall down because I'm just dehydrated. You know, so I always had like skin issues and, you know, weight issues. And the problem with drink too, it's like late night. I'm like, yeah, McDonald's sounds great. Get Uber Eats to my house. It was everything. Just the anxiety went down an insane amount. You know, I haven't, I haven't had a ton of testing done after, but all of my GI issues went away. I, I just, I can't even explain it. Just the way I feel. Hmm. Like I just, I feel like whole now, you know? Like there was like a light being like pushed down for so many years. I, I'm sitting here. I just can't help but be proud for you. I know. Thank you. And you're one of the most fun people I know. Well, thank you. Your presence, like being around you, um, and I've only known you sober. Mm-hmm. Being around you is a gift, truly. I mean, it brings life, brings joy. And um, so whatever you are doing, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's a gift. I think too, that's another interesting thing. Like you've, you've both have only known me sober. I mean, I have friends who party with me for years and knew party Brandon Mm. and they know me now. And you know, a few of those friends, you know, got sober with me Mm. and that that's that's been a huge um, part of my journey to try to be able to help people through sobriety. Mm. Um, Something that I just like, really want to get involved in more. If you are talking to a guy right now who is struggling, like he's, he's been in the back of that truck. Mm-hmm. He has had those moments and he really wants to make a difference. What would you say to that guy right now? I really think the first thing is just figuring out what's gotten you to the place you're at. Mm-hmm. Like why, why are you putting yourself through that? I think some people have traumas that they don't even know exist, whether it's childhood stuff or something that happened in a relationship or, you know, the passing of a parent or, you know, whatever. Like I said, I, I've lived a great life. I had a great family, great support system, and I still went down the wrong path. So I can't imagine people in prison who don't have a support system. And I don't know you talked about that, you know, when Melinda interviewed you as well. It's like having that support system was everything. Mm -hmm. So the thought that like that easily could have been me behind bars. I easily could have gotten in a drunk wreck and killed somebody so many times, hundreds of times. And I was just one of the lucky people that didn't. And then to think, you know, carrying that burden that I took someone else's life, that, that thought still haunts me and I don't even do it anymore. So to think that there's people that don't have support, my heart goes out to them because that is a very tough thing. So I think, number one, finding a support system is very important. Finding friends, you know, in or out of prison. You know, people who are mm-hmm. like-minded, like same energy, same attitude, same general ideas, and just wanting to become better people. Because mm-hmm. this world is pretty crazy. You know, it really is. And uh, no one knows the answers. No one really knows what we're doing. I'm like, people are like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, 
I sing to people, you know, <laughs> and I am every day I wake up and I'm like, this is my life. And I finally chose something that means something to me. Mm. The thing too with Melinda, the, uh, was it do it in fear? Do it, do afraid. it afraid. Do it afraid. Yeah. That is honestly the best advice I think you can give anybody because you'll never progress unless you do something afraid. Hmm. So one of the questions that we like to ask at the end of the podcast is based on the four tenets that Timothy's gift takes in, Mm -hmm. which is you are loved, you have great worth, God is with you, and you are not forgotten. So for you right now, which one of those tenets resonates with you the most in this moment? Probably you are loved. Hmm. Why would you say that? Uh, just because I'm in a room full of friends <laughs> and, uh, man, you just like, when you start thinking about, you know, all my family, all my friends and just knowing that I'm not alone in this world. <laughs> mm. Brandon, this world needs more people with your attitude, your outlook on life, your heart towards others mm-hmm. and your desire to make a positive impact. Oh, thank you guys. I appreciate you. When Brandon said he reached a point in his life where he finally chose something that was meaningful to him, man, that really resonated with me. When you look at the pathway of your life, is it leading you somewhere that you want to be a place of purpose, a place of meaning, a place of fulfillment? Or is it leading you to a path of destruction, of hurt, of brokenness? Only you can make the decision to change. And the good thing is, you have the opportunity to change. You know the next right thing you need to do in your life. And no matter what it is, I want to challenge you to take your next right step now. Thanks for listening to the Next Step Now podcast. This podcast is a product of Timothy's Gift Prison Outreach, a Christian community taking hope into prisons since 2009. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to info at timothysgift.com or write us at P.O. Box 111642, Nashville, Tennessee, 37222. 